We are in week two here of our sermon series, this, this series of talks called Jesus Brings, kind of looking through the Advent songs, like these Christmas carols of like, what does Jesus actually bring at Christmas? What are we celebrating? And uh, that last song we sang, Oh Holy Night, is sort of the basis for the talk today. I'm going to steal a couple lines out of there and kind of hone in on those. And that uh, song was originally a, a poem written by a French guy, Placide Capot. Thank you to my resident French speakers in the room uh, for directing me on that. It was written uh, in the, I think, 1843. They had, this church had fixed up their organ, and they were very excited about it and commissioned a poem. I, I don't know, we don't do those things anymore. Um, in that way, but he writes this poem, which I'm going to read some of the lyrics from it, because the original lyrics in French are both beautiful and different uh, than what we have today. It was rewritten years later by a guy named John Sullivan uh, Dwight in, I think, 1855, who was a Unitarian minister, and he was an abolitionist, some of which you hear come out there in, in the slave is now our brother. He's, he rewrote that line to include that and was, you know, obviously a favorite in the American Northeast uh, in the 1850s. And so but that's how we get it today. It's how we sing it today. So the lyrics that we're going to focus on today um, are are really these two lines. Uh, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. In his name all oppression shall cease. We often sing that line, if you're like me, we think, right, okay, great, we have gotten rid of slavery, good for us, great, that's awesome. We feel good about that, right? And then we sing this, and in his name, all oppression shall cease. And I think if I pushed on that, we might say, eh, what's my involvement in that? Like, I don't know if I'm, like, what does that mean? What does that mean for me to be involved in that? Am I involved in that? What does it mean that Jesus does this? What does it mean that, that in his name, all oppression shall cease? Let me ask a question. Has it? If we're honest, if we look around and see, you know, uh, men and women who are trafficked, modern-day slavery that still exists all over the world, the great disparity and growing disparity between the uber-wealthy and the working poor in our country, other places around the world, our brothers and sisters of color who still deal with oppressive systems in different places. I know I'm poking a little bit, just bear with me, okay? Still exists in our world. And what I would argue is that Advent is, is a time to actually remember two things. Our oppressed ancestors, the Jewish people, that Jesus enters into in the first century, the faithfulness of God to them for all those years, and they're turning to him in prayer like Kevin and Tammy talked about. Their long wait for the rescuer to come. And it's a time for us to remember that darkness still exists in our world. That light has come into the darkness, and we pray that it's a growing light, but that darkness does still exist in our world, in our lives, and in the lives of our brothers and sisters around the world. So what would it actually take for oppression to cease? That's a little bit of what I'm driving after today, kind of taking this lyric from O Holy Night. What I would argue is that it it takes justice. Takes justice being done to see oppression cease in our lives and in our world. It takes gospel people, gospel minded people, walking in humility, loving mercy, and doing acts of justice. But it has to start with Jesus. It has to start with the gospel. So, what the, the, the title of the talk today, if you want something like that, the idea is that Jesus brings justice. 
That's part of what arrives with his first coming. That's what Mary sings about in the Magnificat, that, that Jesus brings justice. So my hope today is, is to lead us from uh, sort of the gates of Eden, okay, all the way to the gates of new creation, all right? So it's part history lesson, part theology, part lyrics from a song, gospel. It's gonna, all this stuff's going to get thrown in, all right? So I have notes to hold myself to it because I'm going to go all over the place if I don't, all right? So we have to start, though, about where does oppression come from? Where does, it even, where does it even start? And I think we have to go all the way back to Eden. We have to go back to first humanity and see what happens there. If you remember, in the Garden of Eden, God takes Adam and Eve and he places humanity into this beautiful place where they have all that they need and things are in right order in that God is on the throne and they are submissive to him. And that's an order that was meant to work and it was very Good, but humanity in a quest for autonomy sins and takes God off of the throne and says, thank you very much, we will lead ourselves. We will take care of it from here. And if you remember what God does, actually, I was thinking about this earlier too. I'll just throw this in there because it was neat to me. Bob Dylan, one of my favorite artists uh, in his song, Gates of Eden, which trying to figure out Bob Dylan lyrics is always weird. But in the Gates of Eden, in the Gates of Eden, he says, there are no kings inside the Gates of Eden. Why? Because there's one. (laughs) There's one king in Eden. In creation, and it's God. But humanity takes him off of the throne and says, Man, we're going to try to get onto the throne. We're going to usurp power from you. And what happens from that is God kicks them outside of the gates of Eden. And the ground is cursed and the earth is cursed because of their behavior, because of their rebellion. And what happens when the earth is cursed is now it's going to be hard to work things. It's going to be hard to procure things for themselves. So then it leads to scarcity, which leads to greed, envy, which leads to robbery, murder, which leads to kings and people who are oppressed, the people that have more and the people that have less, right? And so there's this oppression that starts to come into humanity, into the picture, where there's a weak and a strong, a poor and a rich, rulers and the oppressed, and it all starts because of sin, of taking God off of his rightful place on the throne and saying, we'll get on the throne. And that leads to all of this chaos, curse, and oppression in the world. It's the beginning, right? So why should we care? That to me is a a logical question. Why should we actually care? We're doing okay, right? I know most of your stories, I can look around this room and say, we're all doing okay, right? What, middle class? Upper middle class, maybe? Doing all right? We don't really feel oppressed. Like, why do we care about this? Why should we care about oppression? Because I would argue that justice is in God's character. Scripture points to it again and again and again. I am um, an avid Philadelphia Eagles fan. And because I'm a good parent, I'm raising my kids right to be Eagles fans. Listen, the Bills are AFC, okay? Like, I'm, like I got the soft spot for them. I mean, the four lost Super Bowls, I mean, that's a real shame. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. So my kids, it's in my character, right, to love the Eagles. And on Sundays during the football season, you know that I'm going to be there cheering them or booing them, as it is sometimes. And and my kids know that to be near me, they're going to be near the television, which is near the Eagles, right? They're going to draw close to me, and we're going to watch the Eagles together, and and, and they're going to be Eagles fans. And it's in my character to love the Eagles, and it goes off onto them, and then they're watching it with me. So we're all in this thing together. It's kind of a crude example, but I want to look at at what the Bible says about God's character and justice and why it should rub off on us, why it should matter to us that God cares about uh, justice and the, and the oppressed. Uh, 
picking up in verse seven of Psalm 146, it says, he remains faithful forever. This is talking about God, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. You see it in God's character all throughout scripture. Tim Keller has a great book called Generous Justice. Highly recommend it. Encourage you if you want something to read. It's a smaller book. It's great. Uh, Generous Justice. And in here, in that book, he he defines two different words that scripture uses regularly. And I just want to briefly uh, show them to you. The one is uh, mishpat, which is this Hebrew word that means justice. It appears over 200 times in scripture. And it means like this this idea of um, like rectifying, meaning making something right. It means uh, just punishment for wrongdoing, like fair punishment for wrongdoing, regardless of someone's race, um, ethnicity, uh, wealth, or not wealth. It's like just a fair execution of justice across the board. Uh, it, it means giving people their rights, giving people what they are due. It's the idea, it's a rectifying thing. It's making something right that was wrong or giving something that is due. All right, this is the idea of justice. But the other word that's, that often accompanies it is righteousness. All right, and this is a Hebrew word, tezaka, which means um, right relationships. This is more of an individual one-to-one thing. So the idea of righteousness, this is what's interesting to me. The idea of righteousness, if you've grown up in the evangelical church or coming out of fundamentalism, righteousness in our minds is all about like personal holiness, my good behavior, my sexual purity, my good morals. Well, it's, it's, actually, a, it's actually a much more relational word in a sense, it's, it's the idea of, of, of living rightly between people, and it's profoundly social in how we interact with one another. It's not just about personal holiness, though it is. It's how we are holy to one another, how we interact with one another. And if people were righteous, we wouldn't need justice, right? If people were righteous, we wouldn't need to rectify what's been done wrong. We would just treat each other and love one another the way that we were supposed to, and justice would be done without the need for, you know, rectifying it. So the Bible mentions justice over 200 times. And what Keller says is, he takes a word from somebody, he takes this line from somebody else, that it's, it's justice for the quartet of the vulnerable, justice for the poor, for widows, for orphans, and for, uh, I think that translation says, uh, resident aliens or immigrants, refugees. I mean, over and over and over again, God calls his people in the Old Testament to do justice to those four groups of people, widows, orphans, poor, immigrants, and refugees. It's in God's character to, poor, to, to care for the poor, to care for the vulnerable, to care for the marginalized, those whose society has ignored or done wrong by. It is all throughout the scriptures pointing to God's character to be about these things. And so what God does, going back to Eden, when it falls apart and oppression comes into the picture and sin enters the picture, God says, I'm going to start a new people, a people who do justice, a people who love mercy. And he calls Abraham and Sarah and they become Isaac and Jacob and they become the nation of Israel. And he gives them this covenant. He gives them this law, which if you were to sum up the law, it's all about righteousness and justice. It's about love God, love others. It's the sum total of the Old Testament covenant. It's about being a righteous people that do justice towards the world around them. He says, you're going to image me out to the world. My character is one of righteousness and justice. My throne is is founded upon righteousness and justice. Now you go live that out. This is the whole point of 
the, uh, the, the covenant, the, the Old Testament law, as it were. But what does Israel do? They say, nope, we're not going to do that. We're actually going to abuse one another. We're going to treat each other poorly. We're going to think ourselves just super special and everyone else is an outcast. We're not going to care about the immigrants and the aliens. We're going to use unfair scales and weight systems, and we're going to abuse the poor. And God allows them to be oppressed because of that behavior. He allows them to go into exile because they don't actually act in righteousness and justice. They live in greed and just disparity between people groups. It's fascinating. So Isaiah, speaking to the people years later, Israel has been allowed to slowly fall apart as God is warning them again and again to be people who pursue him, to live righteously, to do justice. And they continue to just worship idols and do whatever they want. God speaks to Isaiah, who's speaking to the people, and God tells Isaiah this, cry out loudly, don't hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways, like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments, they delight in the nearness of God, and they say, why have we fasted but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves but you haven't noticed. Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this? A day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and to ignore and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Listen to what God says. Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke, that yoke of oppression among you, the finger pointing and the malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will come in the darkness and your night will be like the noonday. God is warning the people of Israel saying, you are going to go into exile because you didn't do these things, because you didn't actually carry out the heart of the covenant, which was to love God and to love others. And Israel, who was supposed to be the ones being righteous and doing justice, are now going to become the oppressed. God is going to allow this to happen in their midst to wake them up to see that they should come back to him in what is true worship. And so into the midst of this brokenness, into the midst of this oppression that's now coming on them, he promises a new throne. He promises a new king to come into their midst who will actually do righteousness, to be righteous and to do justice. He's promising them a new light will come into their midst, into the darkness. And in Isaiah 9, which is, uh, you know, a famous Christmas passage, you know, looking back on this, we can now see what Isaiah is promising them. So to this people who are getting ready to go into exile because they've not been following the ways of God, because they've not been honoring the covenant, he says, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea 
to the land east of the Jordan and to, the, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government, the throne, right? The ruling power will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. God is speaking through Isaiah, telling the people, one will come who's going to be a light in the darkness, who will have the government on his shoulders, who will be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, who will reign with justice and righteousness, who will free the oppressed, whose dominion will go to the ends of the earth. And it's into this environment, this waiting for this one to come, this waiting for oppression to be done away with, that we find angels proclaiming to Mary, you're going to be the one who's going to carry him. You're going to be the one who's going to give birth to this one who's going to break the chains of the slaves, who's going to free the oppressed. And it's into that environment that we get the passage that Kevin and Tammy read a little while ago of Mary saying, yeah, you've brought down the powerful. You're going to raise up the lowly. You're going to free the oppressed. You see, Mary is the, is the Theotokos, the, the, the God-bearer, right? Maybe you've heard this term before from Pastor Adam or things you've read in the past. And she starts to get this picture. As she's, as she's bearing the Savior, the one who's going to come and do all these things, she's starting to get the picture of justice for the lowly, of which she is one. <laughs> she's starting to feel this personally in her own life, that God's looking upon her lowly estate, and going, everyone's going to call her blessed. That God is lifting her up in her humility, and she's finding her identity in him. That God is scattering the proud and the oppressive who won't give up their power. Think of Herod in those days. Think of Caesar in those days. And she's saying God is going to scatter the proud. And I would say as spiritually, it's true as well that God is scattering the proud in their spirits who say we've got it all under control. Whether you're rich, poor, low, or high, it doesn't matter. It's a pride issue in our hearts that often keep us from the Father. She sees that God is filling the hungry. And again, I would argue that's both a physical reality that God, through the loving of one another, is going to feed the hungry and the poor, but also in a spiritual reality, right? That he's going, to feed, he's going to feed and fill those who are hungry for righteousness, Jesus tells us. And she sees that God is sending the rich away empty. Man, power corrupts and wealth leads people to be abusive and controlling and self-proud and self-made and say, I've got it all under control. And Jesus comes into this picture and says, actually, I do. Actually, I do. Humble yourselves before God and find him. And she sees that God is going to send them away empty. So what Mary is painting for us, what the song is celebrating in oppression ceasing, is that Jesus, when he comes to earth, is a bringer of justice. 
that God becoming king actually brings justice to our world for the vulnerable quartet, right? For these people who are poor, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, the refugees. You see this, right? Don't we see this in Jesus's life? In the way that he does his ministry? In who he's friends with? In whom he loves and reaches out to? You see him hanging out with all of the broken people. All of the marginalized. The people that good, self-righteous others were leaving by the wayside and saying, we don't want to be with them. And Jesus says, those are my people. The lowly. Those are the ones who I'm going to be with. Luke 4, you see Jesus reading from Isaiah and he says, look, yeah, someday one's going to come who's going to set the oppressed free. Who's going to loose the chains. Who's going to heal the blind. And he says, today this is being fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, it's me. I'm the one who's going to do this and bring justice for the oppressed and care for the poor and care for the marginalized. We see it all over his ministry. So what it means is he's actually the new Adam. He's the one who is going to do what should have been done in Eden all along, which is to put God rightly on the throne and worship him only and care for those around us. He's the true Israel who's going to fulfill all of the covenant of loving God and loving others, of having only God on the throne. We see this all throughout Jesus's life. There are no kings inside the gates of Eden besides God. (laughs) And Jesus is starting a new creation a new Eden in which there's only one on the throne and it's Yahweh, it's the father. And Jesus lives this out. And in so doing, he says, I don't need all of this wealth for myself. I don't need all of this power for myself. I don't need all of the accolades for myself. I'm gonna go and do justice in the world around me. I'm gonna take these things that the father has given me and love the people around me. I'm gonna do justice in my sphere of influence as it were. So listen, we live in a world that has lots of ideas about what to do about oppression and problems and injustice. I'm going to generalize here, okay? I'm not talking about any of you specifically, all right? Everybody, not, okay, just don't stone me, okay? I'm gonna generalize. To deal with oppression and problems in our world, there's a large group of the population that want righteousness without justice. They want right behavior personally without justice. Generally speaking, this might be the conservative right. Okay, okay, just breathe. It's okay. All right. They want the righteous behavior, the moral behavior of individuals. They want people to act right. If people would just behave right, then all the problems would go away. It's the pull yourselves up by your bootstraps mentality. Just get it together and then everything will be okay. Just behave right. The problem is, what if there are systems in place that are oppressive or broken because of unrighteous people? Right? Tim Keller in that Generous Justice book talks about how there's often structural factors in place that lead to personal irresponsibility right? That if you grow up in a broken environment, it's hard to have righteous behavior flow from that, right? And so I don't think that righteousness without approaching the ideas of justice actually works. On the other side, okay, I'm going to poke a little bit, that might be classified as like people on the left, it'd be this idea of justice, but without righteousness, without personal responsibility, We just want good systems in place. 
If we just put the, word, the right laws on the books, then oppression will be dealt with. Then everything will go well. Then everything will be fixed. Friends, there's plenty of laws on the books that say things shouldn't be the way that they are in our country and certainly around the world, right? Everybody's got their different ideas of laws. Which one's right? Which one's wrong? The problem is that systems are established by unrighteous people. (laughs) They break down after a while. Systems don't account for things like nuance, balance, and often, like I said, they corrupt and they lack righteousness. We need righteousness and justice together. We need both of those things, personal responsibility and systematic responsibility together. The problem in our world is that in both of these situations, whether it's right or left, justice or righteousness, the problem in both of these is that we want to put ourselves on the throne and be the answer. We want to be the ones who say, well, I'm going to do justice perfectly. I'm going to be the most righteous one. If everybody else would just be like me, everything would be okay. We are still on the throne in both of those environments. And it becomes proud. It becomes unmerciful. It becomes unnuanced. The gospel, the good news of Christmas, the result of of Advent that we will celebrate and we are celebrating is that Jesus brings justice and righteousness. That he brings justice by setting up a truly righteous throne and kingdom and putting the Father on it. It's justice and righteousness working together like I read about in Psalm 89. That they are the foundation of his throne together. And that through Jesus, like we've been talked about last, like we we talked about last week, at least I did, um, is this idea that God and sinners have been reconciled, that, that we can have righteousness from outside of ourselves bestowed on us by Jesus. That in the most unjust thing that has ever happened, Jesus comes into our brokenness, takes all of his freedom and puts it aside and comes into our oppression, into our sin, into our darkness and shackles himself to it. And instead says, now you can be free. My righteousness I now give to you when you humble yourselves and believe in me. He dies to give us life and frees us. And he bestows his righteousness on us and says, oh, now by the power of the spirit, now you can pursue gospel living. Now you can pursue gospel motivated behaviors. Now you can pursue grace-motivated behaviors and morals. He died to give his life to us, to free us. And this is where, man, the original lyrics of this song, the original French wording, he says this, the Redeemer has broken all shackles. The earth is free and heaven is open to us. He sees a brother where there was once but a slave. Love unites those who restrain the sword. That's a great line right there. Love unites those who restrain the sword. But what you see here is him saying, he sees a brother where there once was but a slave. Later rewritten to say, the slave is now our brother, right? By an abolitionist. Both are true. This is the beauty of righteousness and justice and Jesus giving this to us. He says, you are no longer slaves. You are children of God. You are brought into the family because I'm going to bestow my righteousness upon you. 
We've been set free. We are no longer oppressed. So what have we been set free from? I would argue our own kingdoms, our own thrones of saying, I need to be on that throne. It's my kingdom. It's my queendom. I want to be up there. The sin of Eden all over again that we do every day in our lives. Jesus says, I'm going to free you from that. I'm going to free you from that so that you put God on the throne, the father on the throne, and that gives you righteousness. Then justice can be done because when we sit on our own thrones, what happens? Greed, self-serving power, hungriness, right? Our pride, our self-saving security of I need to do it all myself, that self-righteousness that says it's all up to me. It comes down to our ego and self-love and trying to find approval. And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna free you from all of that. And you put God on the throne and God gives you a new identity. And it's no longer a slave, it's a brother, it's a sister, it's a child of God. And we are freed by his grace to put God on the throne this Christmas, which starts to lead us into a place of humility, This is why Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. It's it's an upside down freedom because of what we've received from Jesus. We don't need to fight for the throne anymore. We can actually take a place of lowliness. This is why he says to the disciples, you don't have this authority to lord it over people. You have it to serve people. The son of man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Mary says he has scattered The rich, he has scattered the proud. He has sent the rich away empty. She's seen that God is doing this great reversal in taking the oppressed and the slaves and raising them up and saying, sons and daughters of God. One with me, co-heirs with Christ. And it leads us to a place of humility to say, oh my God, I am wrong in putting myself on the throne. I only want you on the throne starts with humility and grows in humility as well. I'll read one more passage, a couple verses from the book of Micah. Famous couple verses. God is, again, similar to Isaiah, telling the people, he's answering their question of, well, what do we need to do about our sin? What do we need to do about the brokenness in us? The writer asks, what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Listen to God's answer. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly. Some translations say to love mercy or to love faithfulness. It's that that idea of um, chesed love, which is a committed faithfulness, a committed love and mercy. And to walk humbly with your God, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God wants. (laughs) Humbly putting him on the throne, which then enables us to be people who become the theotokos, the God-bearers carrying Jesus out to the world, carrying his image out to the world, not ours, not our throne, carrying his throne out to the world, carrying his image out to the world, walking in humility based on the righteousness that Jesus has given us, not that we've earned, not that we could ever earn, walking out in humility with his righteousness given to us to put God on the throne, 
undoing the sin of Adam and Eve and putting themselves on the throne, we say, no, no, we're going to put Yahweh on the throne. We're going to put the Father on the throne where he rightly belongs. We, re- we receive this, this righteousness from Jesus. It's not our own. And it leads us to, to this, this mercy, this chesed love, this, this faithfulness to the people around us. Why? Because we know that we've been given mercy. Because God has said, even though you are broken, even though you are sinful, I will have mercy on you. Now you go be people of mercy. You go be people of loving kindness and faithfulness and justice for the world around you because what I've bestowed on you. Friends, it's the great reversal that happens. That we no longer need to live with ourselves on the throne. We no longer need to live with a political party on the throne. We no longer, this is why Jesus was like, I don't care what you do with Caesar's money. Give to Caesar what's his. God's on the throne. We'll do whatever down here. That's fine. You see it? Jesus is saying there's another kingdom. There's another throne that you can put God on. And that enables you to be people of righteousness and mercy and justice in the world around you because of your humility, because of the right ordering of your lives. So listen, we're called to be people of justice. Jesus brings justice and then he starts to raise up the oppressed in one of the greatest acts of injustice ever in the history of the world, right? And he calls us to take on the character of God and to go out representing him to the world. So this Advent, can I encourage you, this Christmas, this new year, can I encourage you to not just wait for Jesus to do it? That he's commissioned us to go be people who love mercy, who do justice in our world, who care for the oppressed around us. So I want to close with a couple thoughts. We can do acts of justice to see oppression cease in our spheres of influence. Through the, the, through the mercy that Jesus has bestowed on us, we get to carry that to others. So you might not be called to some kind of massive justice issue. But you can be just now in your spheres of influence. Maybe you might be called someday to be a lawyer. Representing prisoners who've been falsely accused, which happens over and over again in our country. But maybe... You've been called to just love somebody in your street and your neighborhood is going down a bad path before they even get to that point. We can do that in our spheres of influence by the power of Jesus in our lives. Maybe you might be called to resettle refugees, Afghan refugees that are pouring into this country right now, Iraqi refugees from from wars past. Maybe you're called to that, but maybe you're just called to love the immigrant who lives on your street and be a person who looks out for them and says, how can I help you? How can I bless you? How can I walk with you in this this life of immigration to this country, which is a weird thing to try and do? Maybe you might be called to advocate for and protect women uh, here and around the world someday. I, I hope that some of you are in some kind of large way, but maybe you're just called to care for a single mom in your neighborhood who's having a tough time now. Do you see it? We get to be these kind of people who put God on the throne and that enables us to go and love others with the mercy that we've been given. Maybe you might be called to speak out on a national platform about racism, and I hope that some of you are. But maybe you've just been called to love people who look different than you, who speak differently than you, who act differently than you in your school, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. If you're called to speak up and say that joke's inappropriate in your locker room, at your awkward family Christmas gathering, 
When your great uncle says something, you're like, you can't say that. See what I'm saying? We get to be people of justice, not because we're righteous, not because we're great, but because God has had mercy on us. We then get to go and be people of justice and mercy for the world around us. Friends, God is near the quartet of the vulnerable. If we want to be near to God, be near to them. Jesus is pretty clear about that. You love me when you love the prisoners, the naked, right? He's pretty clear about that. Feed the hungry. And when God is put on the throne of our hearts, Through the gospel, we grow in humility and mercy for others. When God is put on the throne of our hearts through humility, we grow in righteousness and thus gospel-motivated behavior, not self-righteousness. When we put God on the throne of our hearts, we pursue justice in our spheres of influence and begin to see what that lyricist talked about. All oppression cease. Sounds like God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, right? We're not called to just wait for him to do it. We're called to be empowered by him to go and be part of that work this Christmas. Jesus brings justice.